0: Welcome back to the Coach and Kernan Podcast Network. I'm Dave D'Agostino, your co-host, and I'm joined by. My Hall of Fame co-host, Kevin Kernan. We are here with real voices of the game today, special guest, Rick Cerrone. Now, it's R-squared, Rick Cerrone, uh, current editor-in-chief of Baseball Digest, not the former catcher of the Yankees, even though you guys had parallel careers in terms of when when you broke in and how you rose. But we're welcoming Rick Cerrone today. I'll give you a little background on on him, current editor-in-chief of the iconic Baseball Digest. I was a subscriber as a kid. And now because of the interview, I'm going to subscribe again for Christmas. 80-year anniversary. Um, we're involved with that now. Was also the Senior Director of Media Relations, 96-2006. to 2006. Great run for the Yankees. 11 playoff appearances, six World Series, four titles. Uh, was with Joe Torre the whole time. And their VP of Public Relations for the Pittsburgh Pirates. Uh, that was a fun time with them with the Killer Bees. Also founded out of, out of college, uh, founded Baseball Magazine, which I want to start off with a quick story. My first question when we get going with it. Uh, but not to be missed was on the PR staff for two baseball commissioners uh, coming out of Northern Illinois uh, at the time when uh, sports management was not a a major, uh, where you kind of made your own way there. And uh, Rick, we're real excited to have you on the show today. Thanks for joining us.
1: Well, it's great to be with both of you. And I, I have a question before we start that great musical score you opened with, the, yeah. Randy, the Randy Newman fanfare from The Natural. Is that your normal open or was that customized because I was the technical advisor on it's,
0: the natural it was customized for the technical right. advisor because i i couldn't find any music for 61 because i know you're also a consultant
1: with billy crystal on that much much yeah. less so with that one but it's funny i was watching the natural because it just happened to be on at about twelve thirty the other night and um not that i had any role post-production i was all pre-production but i found yet another mistake in the movie so uh. there you go
0: that's uh now my my connection with the natural my the gentleman who helped me sign my professional baseball contract Tony Ferrara, oh. who was the third base coach in the movie and also served in some capacity with with helping out
1: yeah and, so, and he but- was a he was my he was my uh, guide when I went up with my uh, fiance for the weekend of filming uh, Tony was my liaison because I had known him from when he was a batting practice pitcher with the Yankees and he was, here's uh, say hi to Robert Redford side of Wilford Brimley is it was, it was a wonderful experience. And, and I'm so happy whenever I see his, uh, his role in that movie.
0: Yeah. He was a uh, very, very helpful to me in, in signing and, and playing professional baseball, but he showed me a wonderful picture. He got a lot of memorabilia from the movie, but he had one a photo of him and Robert Redford and he had uh, he wrote a note to Robert Redford. They had duplicate copies uh, Robert Redford wrote, Tony, thanks for teaching me about baseball. And then to- Tony wrote back, Robert, thanks for teaching me about girls. There you go. Yep. That's great stuff. You get out of it. Um, I want to kick it off with the first question. I'm going to let Kevin dive in. You guys have a long history together and and uh, I think he's going to bring out some great stories. Uh, but uh, as we get started, I'm going to throw a name at you and I want to tell the audience who she is and, and her significance. But uh, we're going to take you back. Uh, I think it was the maybe the Oscars or the Golden Globes where you saw this, but to Teresa Wright, who is she?
1: Well, uh, you know, Th- Teresa Wright and my whole, that whole story, it, it really is a highlight of my Yankee career, maybe my baseball career, because it just shows you what I really believe in. And I, if you remind me, I'd like to tell you how I learned this and who I learned it from I really believe that if you just take a moment to try to make someone's day, you just might change their life. And uh, what happened was I was uh, watching the Academy Awards uh, down in Tampa, Florida, in my apartment during spring training. And it happened to be the 70th anniversary of the Academy Awards. So for that year's telecast, they brought back every living actor and actress who had won an Academy Award. And they unveiled them. You can see this on YouTube. And they were they were seated like a class photo with like three rows of of chairs, and the camera started in the upper left and went across and then all the way down alphabetically. So there was Cher. There, you know, there was you know Dustin Hoffman. Um, and the last person they introduced was the Academy Award winner for Best Supporting Actress in, I want to say, 1942 for. Uh, Mrs. Miniver, Teresa Wright, who's sitting there, an elderly woman, probably approaching 80. And um, I got to thinking that, wow, this is the woman that portrayed Eleanor Gehrig. And you remember how young and beautiful she was in that 1942 biopic of uh, Lou Gehrig with Gary Cooper. And it just occurred to me that this woman should throw out a first pitch. I mean, it was as simple as that. So I ran the idea by Mr. Steinbrenner, and it was one of those times when he kind of went into that Seinfeldian Steinbrenner riff. Like he just kept going on and on about Teresa Wright and the movie and telling little bits about this, what I remember at the movie. But bottom line was he was completely on board and um sent me off to find Teresa Wright. So I, I called a friend uh at the David Letterman show, because they find celebrities all the time. And that person got me a phone number for Teresa's agent, who was a man that his name was Francis Del Duca. I don't remember the agency or whether he was in, but I called him up and he was very nice. And he took my call and I explained the whole thing, just like I've told you. And he, I'll never forget what he said. He goes, well, that's very nice. I'm sure she'll appreciate it. But don't get your hopes up. I don't think she'll do it. And I said, Well, why not? First of all, she lived right up in Norwalk, Connecticut. So she was only like a car service a limo ride away. And he said, Well, Rick, you have to understand the woman is almost 80 years old. And I said, Well, she doesn't have to strike anybody out. She could hand the ball to the catcher. We just want to honor her. So he goes, Well, I'll I'll talk to her. But as I said, don't get your hopes up. Well, the very next day, my assistant says, Rick, there's a Teresa Wright on the phone for you. Do you want to take the call? Well, well, I get on the phone and there's that voice from 1942 of Teresa Wright telling me how excited uh, that she would be to, uh, to do this. And we picked the date. We picked July 4th, 1998, which was the, I want to say, 59th anniversary of the speech. And um, she came to the stadium with her grandson. A grown grandson and she had this little blue denim dress on and we gave her a Yankee hat. And I'll never forget David and Kevin, I'll never forget her sitting there in the dugout with me as players are coming over and getting her autograph and making her feel at home. And uh, she said to me, this is very exciting. This is the first baseball game I've ever been to. And I'm like, wait a second. You were, you were Eleanor Garrick for crying out loud. And she said, you know, Rick, that was just a role I played in a movie. When it was over, I just moved on to the next script, and I've never been much of a baseball fan. So, okay, the crowd reception was incredible as we showed this clip of her dancing with Gary Cooper. You know, they did remember her. Today, I don't know so much if they would remember an actress from 50 years ago uh, or five years ago, for that matter. but. um you know we sent her on our way. She sent me a lovely letter, and that was the end of the story. So I thought. so we get into the postseason. we're playing the Indians in the a l c s and uh my uh assistant again says there's someone on the phone uh for you. Uh, he's a guidance counselor from uh Connecticut. Well, guidance counselor, okay, I get on the phone. And he says, I am Teresa Wright's son-in-law, and we've got a major problem with her, and it's your fault.
2: Oh, my gosh.
1: And I'm like, excuse me? He goes, yeah. He goes, we can't get the woman to leave the house if the Yankees are playing. (laughs) Everything (laughs) she does revolves around the Yankees' schedule. And I'm like, what? So, you know. From then on, so she came back out. She came to the playoffs. She sat, Mister Steinberg. Now the next year, Teresa's on the phone. Hi, Teresa. Rick, I'm a little concerned about David Cohn. He didn't look good when he left the when he left the game last night. Is he okay? Rick, I'm a little concerned that Joe's overusing the. Book. This was unbelievable. This woman who had never had any interest in baseball, she calls the you know her, you know. Her boys, how are my boys doing? Uh, It was unbelievable. Her daughter once told me it's like Martians and, you know, somebody took over my mother's body. This is not the mother I grew up with. So the first lady of the Yankees in a movie kind of actually became the first lady of the Yankees. And the end of the story is, you know, that next year, I guess, 1999 or so, I invited on behalf of the New York chapter of the baseball writers, Teresa to throw out, to, uh, present the Joe DiMaggio Toast of the Town Award to Derek Jeter. So this must have been 2000, 2001, uh, at the baseball writers dinner, the black tie baseball writers dinner. And, you know, Teresa sat up there and they seated her right next to Derek on the dais. And, um, <clears throat> you know, her, her, her daughter called me like, The next week, and she goes, I have to tell you something about uh, my mother. Um, As soon as the next day, she called her dear friend, whose name I forget off the top of her head, from the theater to tell her that they put a picture of her with Derek Jeter on the dais on the front page of the Sports of the New York Times. And she told her friend that uh, having her picture in the New York Times with Derek Jeter meant more to her than winning the Academy Award. Wow. So,
0: Mm.
1: you know, her daughter Mary Kelly told me when Teresa died in 2005, she thanked me profusely because she goes, you had no way of knowing this at the time, but when you called my mother or when you reached out to my mother, it was at the exact time that she had decided, I can't act anymore. I'm done. I have to retire, whether it was the travel or remembering her lines. Her last film was The Rainmaker, the John Grisham movie, The Rainmaker. Um, And she's like, you know, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? Well, you know, she became the first lady of the Yankees. Uh, She was making appearances. She would, you know, uh, you know, she got on the board of the uh, ALS uh, Foundation and um if you just take the time to make someone's day, you just might change their life.
2: That's that's an amazing story, Rick. Amazing story.
0: Yeah. Well, I, now that
1: we're out of time, guys. <laughs>
0: that's 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 what you can tell us a good story. One question, and it's exactly what we hope for. Um In terms of your career, Rick, you know, I I, I you're very humble about it. I've, I've researched you a ton, and you talk about being in the right place at the right time, but from my perspective, and it's, this is very it's similar with Kevin too. You guys have risen because of your relationships with people. Um, that's easy to see, uh, to talk about your relationship with Mr. Steinbrenner. I hear, I, I know, I noticed you referred to him as Mr. Steinbrenner. Um, and you, and you did a, you did an interview on him in 1977. I think when you were still yeah. in college, how did that interview impact the way you dealt with him later on in life? 20, what, 25 years later?
1: Yeah. Well, 20 years later after that interview, um, which was an amazing thing that this kid who's publishing this magazine uh, could land an interview with the owner of the Yankees after they won the world series <laughs> today, we probably have to do it by zoom or something, but um, you know, it, you have to go back to, I wanted to be the PR director of the Yankees since I, I don't, I can't remember when it was pre high school that I learned that The Yankees, who I loved and were my favorite team, had a role, had somebody have a job called director of public relations. And I learned who it was and what he did. And um, so when I got that interview uh, with Mr. Steinbrenner in November of 1977, you know, I, I had really wanted to be. I mean, I'm there in the role as the editor and publisher of Baseball Magazine. But what I really want is to be the PR director of the Yankees. So, um, I, there was something that happened in that interview. And I, I got to tell you, I, I think I really, for a young kid, I did a pretty good job of asking him tough questions about Munson and Reggie Jackson and Billy Martin. And I asked him a question about his, uh, his management style. Uh, how, how does he manage people? Does he manage people differently, whatever? And I'll never forget his answer. And, and he basically said that some, there are two types of leaders. Some leaders are Eisenhowers and some are Pattons, referring to the great World War II generals, Dwight D. Eisenhower and George Patton, who could not have been more different uh, as personalities. And then he said, and I'm a Patton. So when I left that office, and I can still picture myself walking into that empty player parking lot at dusk on a November afternoon, I said, that's the way I'm going to play this if I ever get this job. Now, I didn't think if I get the job in 20 years, but it, it, was, it was. It was probably, yeah, 20 years, 90, 77 and 96, roughly 20 years. Um, I said, that's the way I'm going to play it. He's General Patton. And I'm a lowly, I'm a corporal. And when I got that job, it was, yes, sir. Or I answered the phone, yes, yes sir. Everything was, sir, if I may. Sir, if I could give you an opinion. or And then it got to be, sir, I can't let you do that. <laughs> sir, are you out of your mind? You know, but we had a great relationship. Um, you know, he never fired me. Uh, I thought he might've once, but I wasn't sure if I quit or he fired me. But (laughs) one time I said to him, if you're going to do that, sir, I think you're going to need to find yourself a new media relations director. And he said, yeah, you're probably right. And he hung up now. Did I just quit or did I just get fired? And God bless my wife. When I went home that night and told her what happened I said, I don't know what to do here, but I got to make a stand. It was something he wanted to do that we could just not do. It was a media thing. or And um, I said, you know, you do you do this. And 10 minutes later, Bud Seelig will be on the phone. And then you'll be calling me up and say, all right, we're not going to do that. So anyway, um, my wife said, you know, remember on Seinfeld when George Costanza, you know, berated his boss? And then Jerry told him, just go back to work the next day like nothing happened, which he did. And I'm like to my wife, well, how did that work out for George Costanza? He got berated by his boss and insulted. She goes, that's my recommendation. I would go into work tomorrow like nothing happened. And that's what I did. And all day I uh, and the next day after that was supposed to be the what was the signing of Jose Contreras press conference. That was the next day. So that's what I'm working on. I would have resigned or gotten fired the day before the Jose Contreras press conference after resigning during the Hideki Matsui press conference. But um, anyway, um, I worked all day. And finally, at like 4.35 o'clock, he called, asked about the press conference how everything was going, wanted me to focus on how, because how was going to be representing the family. And all right, let me know if you need anything. And whoa, whoa, slow. I said, you know, you and I had words yesterday. Oh yeah. you, You know what? I thought about that. You, you were right. We're not going to do that. So that was it. We just moved on from there. And that happened more than once. It happened three times in a five week period, uh, that year in 2003. And it would happen again, uh, before the home opener in spring training that year. But you know what? He gave me a lot of leash. Let me just put it that way. Much more so than I would have ever expected him to give me. And, um, you know, I mean, he—he, he, it was a different time. Um, you know, I watched the other night a 20th anniversary retrospective on ABC about the movie Love Actually, which I think is a wonderful movie. And one of the things that I didn't think about is that the director of the movie and Diane Sawyer were talking about how has the movie held up in the in the twenty years since it was made. And he gave all these different things. Well, you can't do this. I oh my god! I look at this and I shut. You know, the world has changed. The sports world has changed. Media has changed. Communication has changed. Very significantly and dramatically since uh since I left the Yankees in t- in 2006 and it, it, you know it's not a job that I would want to do today the rewards might be greater for all I know but um I I liked the time when I did it I, I think Kevin you'll certainly know what I'm talking about um I think social media has really really in my mind, had a terribly negative impact on sports. You can go on and on about the benefits of social media, all you want. All I see is people apologizing and getting in trouble. Um, you know, there's so many people in sports and among my friends on social media that I, that I never realized were such horses' asses. Uh, you know, but their language, they, they you know, we have to weigh in on everything uh, immediately without thinking. Then we take it down. We apologize, Mike. It's certainly changed the landscape, and it's not a landscape that I would enjoy working in. Kevin, go ahead. You wanted to.
2: Yeah, well, I'm I'm, I'm captivated by the stories. There's great stories, Rick. Um, you know, I've known you, know, you for, forever, <laughs> and uh, the way you care about your job and care about people really shines through. And um, before I get to Baseball Digest, which you've done a great job reviving it, bringing it back. There's so many reasons why it's, people should get it. I've been a subscriber now for probably two years now. And um, actually, um, I think I got I got one more and then I got to re-up, which I'll certainly do. It's great for the baseball fan. But it, there's another part of your career, too. When when you, you know, I first really met you in Pittsburgh and you had a deal, you know, I think you had good training for Steinbrenner. Because you had to deal with some interesting people in Pittsburgh, including Barry Bonds, uh, but you also care about the history of the game, and, and that's why I want to focus on first here. Because so I think you had something, you know, the Clemente statue was done, things like that, and just a, just an aside to everybody now, and all the sports writers in New York, I want them to know this: you would not be seeing the Yankee games. From the from the perch you would you're seeing them, which is a great press box, one of the best in baseball, if not the best. Um, without Rick, Rick fought for the media to get a good seat at the press box instead of being kicked upstairs or in the outfield. So, I just want to uh, i want I want everybody to know that first. You know that that's kind of important. And uh, secondly, take me back to your Pittsburgh days and, and getting involved there, and and even though it was a much smaller. Um, city, what
1: was that experience like? Well, you know, I'm going to try to portray this in the best way I can. My, my six years in Pittsburgh, um, you know, when I went or heard about the the Pittsburgh Pirate job, I had left the, uh, the commissioner's office, which was my first PR job. I was the assistant director of public relations under Bowie Kuhn and then Peter Uberoff, two very different people. Um, and after the '86 World Series, I, I was asked to go to lunch with a, with a young lady who was the promotions director for WNEW AM and FM. Now in 1986, WNEW AM 1130 on your dial was like music of your life. You know, Sinatra, Tony Bennett, Ella Fitzgerald. Sure. I remember. I remember. WNEW FM was classic rock.
2: Yeah. I remember that too. Okay.
1: So. (laughs) This woman, her name was Rose Polidoro. I had met her, you know, through her role as the PR director of NEW. I'm with baseball. Our paths had crossed a number of times. She invited me out to lunch after the '86 World Series. And I'll never forget what she said to me at that lunch. It resonates with me to this day. She said, Rick, we at WNEW believe the future of AM radio is sports. Wow. I'm like, okay. She so nailed it. Yeah. What they were, But see, they thought of it in a team broadcast way. So at that time, they had the Giants. They were the home of the Giants for many years. But then they got Seton Hall basketball, Penn State football. They got the MLB radio package because WCBS didn't want it. And they wanted a show, a three-hour-a-night sports show that was going to tie it all together. So... She wanted me to create the show. They had a host, Richard Neer, and um, because Richard was on the was a morning DJ, and they removed him and Mark McGua- Mark McEwen, who went on to be the great, talented WABC uh, Good Morning America. Oh no, CBS Morning News. I'm sorry, CBS. Sorry, Mark. And um, Richard was given this to come sports show, which was going to. Debut on, like, January 1, 1987. So I thought, I'm not going any further in the commissioner's office. You know, I thought that the new commissioner would always bring in his own PR person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Probably, I didn't gauge that right. But anyway, I thought this was a great opportunity. I had been on Art Rust Jr. show on WABC many times. Uh, Art actually recommended me to replace him when he left WMCA to go to WABC. So in those days, there was two shows. There was Dave Sims on WNBC radio, and there was Art Russ Jr. on WABC. And they were both two or three hour a night shows. So, you know, we did that. And then we went to the Super Bowl. Um, I went to the Super Bowl, which was in Pasadena. There was no radio row at the time. So anybody that says, well, we were the first ones on a Radio Row. Well, I was there before when it was two radio stations. Um it was us and Dave Sims in the yeah, lobby. I was, at that, the, I was at that Super Bowl too. Yeah, yeah, in the lobby of the hotel. And I went with Dave Jennings, who we brought from the Giants as kind of my and Rick Richard stayed in the studio and anchored from New York. Well, Management liked the chemistry so much that when I got back, they made me the co-host with Richard. Wow. Now I'm on the air and I'm the executive producer. And I really longed to get back into baseball. I really want – my dream was always – well, you know what my dream was. It was to be the PR director of the Yankees. But at this point, I just want to be on a team. I want to be part of a team. So that July or that June, a couple things happened one, you know, we were not all in because we were a a three-hour-a-night show five days a week. Well, now we learned that WHN, country music, is going to go 24-hour-a-day sports, right? And I knew two things, right? I knew, one, 24-hour-a-day sports has no chance of succeeding long-term. No chance. But number two, They're going to last long enough to run us out of business.
2: You're out of town. Because we're
1: not, you know, I mean, my lead in is Julius LaRosa, you know, anyway. So I was one for two on those prognostications. Um, They lasted forever. Richard Neer is now there, has been for many years, but they did run. So I got out while the getting was good. And I wasn't really enjoying it to the, degree that one should enjoy it if you're a new york city radio talk show host you really should be thinking this is the greatest job in the world and i wasn't thinking that so about that time a young lady that i had worked with in the baseball commission's office who was an executive trainee she was then hired to be the centennial coordinator for the pittsburgh pirates so 1987 is the Pirates centennial season and One day, while I'm at, she calls me and says that the person that knew ownership, Pirates were owned for like 1986, they changed ownership. They had 13 companies grouped together. So you had U.S. Steel and you had Westinghouse, Alcoa, they all bought the Pirates. And the person they hired as their vice president of PR was let go. And my name had come up as a potential candidate. And I talked it over to my wife, <laughs> and regardless, no, we talked about moving to Pittsburgh, and to, you know, you know, my wife's thinking smokestacks and coal mines, and which is nothing <laughs> like Pittsburgh. No, Pittsburgh's a uh, great city. In 1987. Yeah. So I went for the job. It was the most difficult, exhaustive, exhausting interview process. Uh, I think I was interviewed by three or four different people, including the president at the time, Matt Prine, who was a tough cookie, but I got the job. And we went to Pittsburgh. We sold our house that we had just bought and completely renovated, uh, put our house up for sale, went to Pittsburgh. I actually think lived in Pittsburgh the first year by myself and saw my wife on weekends, um, thanks to U.S. Air at the time. <laughs> and uh, But I will tell you this, I will tell you this. I can't describe to you what an experience that was. And if you talk to any of the people that worked for the Pittsburgh Pirates from 1987 to 1993, just, you know, that period that I was there, um, if you talk to players, if you talk to the manager, um, you can never replicate that. It was the most wonderful, we were a family. And you talk about a couple of years before when it, the Pirates were, we are family. I mean, you know, I, I I have a barbecue and half the team is there. Yeah. I mentioned, I mentioned Mark McEwen and in 1988 or 89, he came to spring training because we had a great year. We, we challenged the Mets and for the division title and they were coming to spring training couple days. They were going from camp to camp. And one day they came to our camp. He did some interviews with players. He had them on live. And he says, no, listen, I'm going to be staying over in Bradenton tonight. So I'd like to take you and your wife to dinner. And I said, oh, that'd be very nice. He goes, yeah, if you got any players that'd like to come along, tell them to feel free. (laughs) And I'm like, well, Mark, how many players and, and and their wives? Mark, how many players and their wives are you talking about? I don't care as many as you want. Okay. Well, we had like nine players and their wives <laughs> at dinner with Mark McGowan. Oh and they, wow! He's like, this is the most unbelievable thing I've ever. It was the greatest group. I'll tell you a funny story. I, I got to tell you the story. So I get the job in like August, and I start like uh August fifteenth. Like, I I go down to officially take the job, and they're playing a game, but I'm not really working yet. But I go down and I. After the game, the PR director that was going to work under me, because I was the vice president, I oversaw public relations, uh, community relations, in-game entertainment, the Pirate Parrot, the Buckle the, the whole the whole yeah. yeah. So after the game, the director of public relations, Greg Johnson, walks me into the clubhouse. I've never been in the clubhouse before. I'm three feet in the door, and this player in the back of the room... I can still picture this. Calls Greg over, so Greg goes. Excuse me, and he goes into the back of the room, and the player said, looks at me, says something to Greg, and Greg nods affirmative. With that, the player drops his uniform shirt and makes a beeline to me, and it's almost like that's the guy that owes me five hundred dollars since you know he was. I'm like, what is going on here? This guy gets up to me, puts out his hand, right? Yeah. Rick, I've been waiting for you. This is Jim Gott, who was our our relief pitcher. And he says, what are you doing after the game? I'm like, nothing, going back to the hotel. He goes, all right, wait for me. We'll go out. We'll get something to eat. I I got a plan. He goes, you know, you and I are linked. We're brothers forever. I'm like, linked? How the hell are we linked? Well, what he meant was, we were in the same transaction, you know. In the newspaper, you have transactions. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It yeah. says, you know, August first, Pittsburgh Pirates claim Jim Gott on waivers from San Francisco Giants. Name Rick Saron, uh, Vice President of Public Relations. So that's what linked me to Jim Gott. Oh, that's awesome. So we go out to 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 this Eden Park, this restaurant after the uh, the game, and he's sitting there saying. Okay, I got a plan. We got we have to change the culture. Now I've got started, but I need your help. Now, we've got 36 games left, or 37 games, whatever it was. We got to win two- thirds of them. That's 24 and 12. one more for we got to go 25 and 12 the rest of the season. You know what our record was the rest of the way when that season ended?
2: I'm guessing 25 and 12. Oh, man, that's amazing. The
1: funny thing is after the last game, which was at home and the place was going crazy for us, we got a standing – the players got a standing ovation. They threw their hats in the stands. I'm like, this is pretty good. Um, They popped champagne in the clubhouse, and we got ripped in the national media because the Pirates celebrated – finishing two games under five, whatever it was. Well, that's not what they were celebrating. They were celebrating, they set a goal, and they accomplished it. So, so that, was this, like,
2: that was like the original Twitter.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly, USA Today or uh, whatever it was. But, you know, the next year we gave the Mets a run. Uh, we played the Mets on a Monday night at Three River Stadium in, I guess, June. 54,000 people, Monday night baseball, Al Michaels, Tim McCarver, and, you know, it's funny. I'll tell you a, a strange thing that happened. A couple years ago, I I was, somebody asked me, do you remember the umpire Frank Pulley? And I said, sure I do. And they said, is he still alive? I said, no, I, I think Frank passed a number of years ago. So that night when I got home, I Googled Frank Pulley. <clears throat> and what came up was his New York Times obit. So Frank Pulley had a career that merited a New York Times obit, rightly so. But the headline said, Frank Pulley, I'm paraphrasing, Frank Pulley, first umpire to use replay, right, passes away. I'm like, what? First umpire to use replay? And I looked it up, and it says, like, in 1997 at, at a Marlins game, he used the first base camera to overturn a home run call or whatever. I said, that's just not true. That is not true because I was part of the first time that an umpire used replay and I was blamed. It was my fault. You got in trouble. Well, no, I didn't get in trouble. I mean, we kind of laughed about it. But so what happened was in that game, that Monday night game against the Mets, now I'm doing this from memory here, even though I wrote about it last year um, and I'm geez, I wish I, I'm not going to remember the name of the home plate umpire, but we're batting, we're winning one, nothing. And we have the, or two to one, we're winning two to one in the fourth inning. Let's say we have the bases loaded and Jose leaned is up at bat. Right. Mm -hmm. So before the season started, the head of the scoreboard came to me and said, look, we've got a lot of obstructed seats. So I want to have a policy that anytime a run scores, we show the replay. Great it's idea. Wonderful. So Great we idea. went. We yeah. went to Sid Thrift, the GM. We went to Jim Leland, the manager, and we said, "Are you okay?" And they both. We all agreed as long as it's not a controversial or a close play. You know, I don't want you showing a play at the plate or what. Okay. So what happens is Dwight Gooden throws the ball to the backstop. Lean jumps out of the way. Whatever. Run scores. All right, run scored on a wild pitch. They show it on the board. Davy Johnson walks out to the home plate umpire, and he's pointing to the scoreboard. Something got his eye. All right, the umpire goes to middle of the field, gets all the umpires in. Jim Leland is sitting in the dugout, just what, just sitting there. The umpire goes over to uh, Leland. Leland's sitting. The umpire's standing, and all of a sudden. All hell breaks loose. Leland is now apoplectic. Okay, I don't think he got thrown out of the game. And what happened was, the umpire said, "Well, we saw clear as day on the replay that the ball hit the bat.
2: Uh. It's a foul
1: ball. He's got to go back and runners." Well, Leland was like, "You can't do that." Yeah, you're
2: changing. You 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 inventing new rules.
1: So I'll never forget, and I got to tell you, I love Jim Leland. Uh, I walk in his office after the game, as I always do, and he goes, "Well, so much for, for I guess, so much for your idea of showing."
2: <laughs> I could just hear him saying that. No, well,
1: well he, he was a lot more colorful than that, yeah. but he was also like, "It's not your fault. This is the dumbest thing I've ever seen." You know. So the quotes from Jim Leland after the game are, "What's going on here? This is this is not what." The next morning, Bart Giamatti issues a statement basically backing up the umpire. Wow. You know, the umpire after the game said, well, I couldn't in my heart. I had to because I saw it on the board that it was the wrong. The next day, Peter Ubarak, my former boss, the commissioner, lamb the decision and puts out a, an edict to every major league team the umpires you are not to use replay under any circumstances
2: and look so, who we are today,
1: um, that was what i was right smack in the middle of in, in pittsburgh um the first use of replay and and Cerrone, it's your fault but um i also had bruce freming order me to turn off all of the all of the video boards all the scoreboards we played the second half of a game one day Without any scoreboards, no balls and strikes, nothing. Um, Because he felt like we put up, we were showing up the umpires because we put the words noise up on the board. He thought we were showing up the umpires. You guys, you guys in many ways were trailblazers. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in many ways. But the bottom line was Pittsburgh was an unbelievable experience. You know, Barry was kind of like challenging, you know, because not everybody's the same. You know, if, if I was somehow doing PR for 25, 30, 40 dentists, right, or, or whatever the occupation might be, everybody would be different. No, Nobody's cut from the same cookie cutter. Um, and I always used to think that, you know, you could say what you want about Barry or you could say what you want about this player, Andy Van Slyke, or whatever. I don't, I've never walked in their shoes, you know, I don't, you know, Kevin, you, you can attest to this and Dave in your way too. Right. You know, when I go up to a player at his locker, right. I don't know what transpired in his life. He got a bad diagnosis of his young daughter or his wife said, uh, you know, I'm going to be, I'm leaving you or he, we don't know. We just expect, expect these guys to be the, you know, okay, Rick, I'll do your interview. Or i so when the guy says, you know, I'm not doing that or I'd rather not or whatever. You know, there are reasons that we're not seeing. Well, that's why relationships are so important. Yeah, but talk about relationships. And I got to tell you, I got to tell you two stories about, we made a trip back to my wife, Karen, and I. My wife gave up her job in baseball. You know, just like I wanted to be the PR director of the Yankees, she wanted to be a statistician. I mean, Kevin, you remember when teams had statisticians? I sure do. Yeah. Well, she wanted to be a statistician and she actually met with the Mets statistician, uh, Arthur Friedman. And uh, she got a job working in broadcasting in the baseball commissioner's office. Um, but uh, we made a visit back to Pittsburgh. And she had to give up her job in the commissioner's office to move to Pittsburgh. So that was another element of, you know, Pittsburgh and I give up my job. Uh Anyway, um, but you it was right, right. That's another one. But we wouldn't have traded it for anything. It was wonderful. So we went back to Pittsburgh this last late April, early May, and I decided I wanted to put together a reunion of my staff. You know, the the guy from the scoreboard, my PR people, Jim L- Lachima, Jim Tradinich, Greg Johnson. All uh, great people you still, know, game, you know, pretty Greg much. Greg Brown, the, the broad, uh, broadcaster yeah. who worked in broadcasting back then. My, you know, community relations people, Patty Paytas and Sherry Rosiski So I sent out invitations to them all. And, you know, I, dinner's on me. You guys just pay for your, you know, every single person, not one person declined. Wow. Uh, even even Jim Leland came and had a great time. And uh, it was just a different I can't explain it. It was so different than the Yankee experience, which was in its in its own way wonderful, right? But it was more at a distance. You were more. You're the you know. You're the PR guy. You, you know. Yeah, there were definite um, there were definitive lines
2: like you don't you know that you know the, the clubhouse is the clubhouse. You're who you are. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So. Exactly. And I made sure I never overstepped or I never. Uh, two very different experiences. I'm so happy that I I had both of them. You know, I didn't get any rings with the Pirates. We had three chances where we were two games, one game, one batter away from getting to the World Series. You know, I mean, I was right there. You know, I was. I recently saw on MLB Network, and this is like 12 years old, but they replayed it where they did the 20 greatest games, and they had some of the principles. And game number four was. Pirates Braves game uh. 7 of the NLCS and when 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 my good friend Sid Bream yep. <laughs> you uh. know uh who who the next you know in 1994 you know is in my house at my surprise birthday party my surprise 40th birthday party I'm like looking at Sid and, like, and but when he slid across the plate and and Lavalier tagged him but just a little too late Um, I was holding the MVP trophy in the clubhouse because somebody gave me the trophy at the start of the inning and said, hold on to this. It's going to Tim Wakefield.
2: Oh my gosh.
1: And when that, when Sid slid across the plate, that person grabbed, just didn't ask for it. (laughs) Just grabbed it out of my hands and literally ran out of the room. So that's as close as we got in Pittsburgh. Well, I was uh, I was at
2: that game myself, sitting next to the the one and only Paulie Meyer, if I oh, remember. God bless. And, yeah, God bless Paulie, longtime Pittsburgh writer, um, just a great guy. But uh, I just thought of it as you were talking, there's a great there's a great footage of Barry and Leland kind of getting into it at, oh. at in spring training in Bradenton. You probably know more about that than anybody because uh, you know I'm I'm just curious. Uh, what was that all about? And uh, it's a, you know, people, they show it every once in a while, but to me, there's gotta be a story behind the story.
1: Well, when you see the video, I'm standing next to the camera. Okay. But but I'm want, I'm wary to, to get involved because my now associate editor, and then my assistant PR director or my PR director at that time, Jim Lachima, he was the assistant. And then when, Greg uh, Johnson became the traveling secretary. He was the director of media relations. You know, we're in spring training. And I think Barry was just, something was bugging him. His contract situation or, you know. Absolutely, Absolutely. um, But he was, you know, he was not a happy camper, so to speak. And he basically ordered the photographers and camera people that we basically invite. You know, you want people to cover you. Uh, to stop taking pictures of him while he's working, you know, while he's doing it. I I can't tell him to do that. I have no, he goes, I'll, you know, it got, it was heated between Jim and, uh, you know, and then, uh, I think Jim felt that he disrespected Bill Verdon who was there as an instructor and Jim revered, uh, Bill Verdon. That's what did it. Not, I don't even think Jim knew about the, uh, the Jim LaChima exchange, but he just exploded. He and You can see his words and I'm not going to repeat them, but, you know, uh, he just, and Barry just, you know, sheepishly, I think Barry was devastated by that. And um, well, you know, things worked out. We're, it was a family. Yep. And, and things like that idea. happened. And, you know, you know, we, we all loved Barry. I love Barry, you know, I mean, you know, we, I I got Barry, I, I like to say that I got Barry his first ever endorsement, which may not be true, but it was one of the first because some sunglasses, there was a, a, a store in Pittsburgh that sold glasses, it was called the IT, Pittsburgh IT, and they would run this, this series of ads on the back cover or, you know, one of the pages of Pittsburgh magazine with some local celebrity wearing these glasses and they wanted Barry and his wife at the time, son. So he was excited to do it, and we went. And he took us to lunch after the shoot. And uh, you know, I mean, we, you know, we we were one time when we went to Cincinnati for Game One of the or Game Three, I guess it was of the uh, 1990 NLCS. A couple of us that were friends, the Drebecks, Brian Fisher and his wife. And uh, Sid and Sid his wife, uh, we were walking to a restaurant where we had made dinner reservations. And we stumbled at the corner before crossing the street. There was Barry and son. And Barry's like, where are y'all going, blah, blah, blah. You mind if we join you? So, you know, I certainly didn't mind Barry joining us. So we had a, a wonderful dinner. And at the end of the dinner, I picked up the check. <laughs> because, thought, well, you know, the ball club will pay for this. Yes, I, yes, yes. I was shooting craps, but, I, you know, we're going to sit there going, oh, who, who had what, you know. And Barry goes, you're picking up the check? And I said, yeah, I want to tell my kids someday that I bought dinner for a Hall of Famer. So, you know.
2: That's awesome. You know,
1: it, you know, I, I think we were a family. I really do. I really do. Well, you know, and again, getting to know Barry, I, I, I have a
2: good relationship with Barry. I always like Barry. You just got to be, you got to play in Barry's turns, but you also got to let him have it when you have to let him have it. Um, I know we want to have you back because it's just unbelievable, your stories. Uh, but b- before I hand it over to Dave, I got one more, um, because not only your history in the game, but what you're trying to do, give us a breakdown of what you're trying to do with, with, with Baseball Digest. Uh you know, again, it's a great magazine. Love reading it. Everything from now to, you know, uh, you, you have stories of way back when. I just remember reading a Tim McCarver piece from, that was pretty interesting. Uh, what What is the game plan there? How's it going? And where do you see it going with Baseball Digest?
1: Well, the decision was made, you know, the Baseball Digest that we all grew up with. Um, I mean, I was an avid reader in the late 60s, early 70s. It was a digest size, Reader's Digest size, with newsprint. It wasn't color, and then they went to color. And in, uh, I want to say it was the late 2000s or early 2010s, the decision was made to uh, make it a slick paper, full color, full size, and six times a year. So in 2018... You know, I got involved because I was told that they were they were basically uh, getting rid of their brick and mortar, like their offices and everything was going to be done remotely. And they wanted a new editor. <clears throat> and, um, you know, they wanted me to basically reimagine the publication. Um, so I basically set these very firm themes of what I wanted to do. I wanted to chronicle and celebrate our national game. So it's engaging and it resonates with readers today. But if you pick it up in 25, 50, 100 years, somebody looking at baseball in 2022 is going to say, well, let's see what Baseball Digest, how they did, you know. So the greatest compliment I have, I get, and I get them from writers and I get them from friends and is I, you know, I got a call unsolicited from John Sterling about a week ago, John Sterling, the voice of the, of the Yankees. Who just called me one evening just to tell me, I just finished reading cover to cover (laughs) the latest issue. I learned things. Every time I pick up the magazine, I learned something like I'll have Bill Madden call me and say, where did you get that story on? Or where did you get that note? On? You know, we need to tell stories that haven't yet been told. Um more so than just, you know, uh you know, pitch framing or something, you know, about it's a people-driven uh business. And um, you know, we're a print publication. That's got its uh it's it's obstacles you know when the pandemic hit and everything well you know there ain't no baseball digest at barnes and noble cuz they stopped selling magazines and then when they started again our printing costs our shipping cost, cost of ink you know you yeah. know they need the, the they need the elements that make ink for the for the uh the covid vaccine you know you're getting hit from all sides but you know we've survived you know wars you know we we've, we've survived a lot um, the the print magazine continues to hold its own. Uh, you know, we look into going digital. Uh, we do have every issue of the magazine in its 80 year history, now 81 year history, available uh, online, which is the Baseball Digest Archive site. Uh, we're looking into combining subscriptions, where if you get a subscription, you would get it digitally, you would get the archives. Um, so we got a lot of things to do, but uh, it's been a lot of fun. It's been a great challenge, but it's been very rewarding. How,
0: do, how does someone subscribe?
1: Uh, right now, I would go to baseballdigest.com slash subscriptions. And if I'm not incorrect, uh, right now we have a discounted one year and a two for the price of one two-year subscription. So if you subscribe for a year, you get the second year free, or you can take a discount on the on the first year, and that's baseballdigest.com forward slash subscriptions. Oh, I love it. Um, I just
0: have one more question. I think this is a great message uh, for our kids out there, and I don't. We didn't mention it before the show, Rick, but we're in 42 countries right now. Our listenership, all the way down from grassroots baseball, we just celebrated our. You have two 18 new national team members from New Zealand that are good listeners. And they just, they just uh, qualified for the Oceana championships. So a lot of youth, youth baseball out there all the way up to front offices, but I, I'd love you to end it on your story. Um, sophomore year in high school, I'm going to mention the name and I'll let you run with it, but Bud Dowds, I know his father, was he the first Pittsburgh Steeler football yeah, coach?
1: He yeah. was Jap Dowds was his name. So Bud, um, Douds, Tell it, tell your story. So basically, I had to take two classes again in the summer after my freshman year just to become a sophomore. Because um, I guess I flunked two courses freshman year. I had a very difficult time uh, adjusting to public high school um, because I went to parochial school for nine years and never left my desk at whatever year it was. You sat in the same desk every day. Uh, now I'm in high school and, you know, People are asking me to protest the war. We're going to walk out of, you know, whatever it might have been. Do you want to join the weather club, the pep club? I'm focusing on everything except uh, my my studies. So the summer of my, after my freshman year, while I'm taking, uh, I'm taking two summer courses at a nearby high school, not even my own high school, um my friends are going to the beach, they're going here, they're going there, and I'm getting on a bus. So while I'm doing that, my guidance counselor from my freshman year, a man named Richard Swales, I read that he's been named principal. So I give no thought whatsoever at that time to the single event that changed would change my life. that Richard Swales, my guidance counselor, gets named principal because that set all the balls in motion. So I I find out at some point that my new guidance counselor is Buddy Dowds, who I know is the football coach. That's all I know about him. And his father was the first coach of the Pittsburgh Steelers. But, you know, I don't think any anything more of that. So the first year of... Now, I don't even know, but think about this. I don't know how I, my name got to Bud Dowds and not to Mr. Delaney or Mrs. Baptiste or whoever were the other... But I I was assigned to Bud Dowd's. My life is much different if I'm not assigned to Bud Dowd's. So, the first week of school, second week of school, I have a meeting. I can still picture myself sitting next to his desk as he's looking at my, I call it my rap sheet. He called it my transcript. But, um, and he's just shaking his head like, whoa, holy crap. You know, and finally he looks at me and he says, and he, he was so soft-spoken. He was more like a minister or a priest than a football coach. And he basically said, son, let me ask you a question. Um, what do you see yourself doing when you have a job when you're a grown-up? Something like that, right? And I know that at that very moment, before I answered, I knew whatever I said, I want to be a doctor, a lawyer, an accountant, a, you know, I want to run a film projector, or whatever it was, I want to drive a bus. Whatever it was, his response was going to be, well, if you want to do that, you're probably going to need a high school diploma. And the way we're starting, that doesn't look like it's going to be an easy putt. So, but what I did answer him basically floored him. And he will tell you that to this day, you know, 52 years later, I said to him, that's easy, coach. I'm the public relations director of the New York Yankees. And and his response was, wow, that's awful specific. Uh, maybe you should say or think, I want to be the public relations director of a professional sports team. And I'm like, no, it's got to be the Yankees. And I told him why, that the Yankees have a man named Bob Fischel, and he's the director of public relations. And I remember saying, coach, I know I'm not going to be Mickey Mantle. I'm never going to grow up to be Mickey Mantle, but there's no reason I can't grow up to be Bob Fischel. Now, my Coach Dowd's recollection of it, and we talked about this within the last – because he doesn't start any conversation off without bringing up the subject of that day in that office because he says nothing like that has ever happened to him in 50 years of, you know, counseling kids. His recollection is I'm not big enough to play football for you, Right? But I don't think I would have said that because never in my wildest dreams would I have thought about going out for the football team. But, you know, I'm not going. I'm not big enough. I'm not, you know. So we're kind of divided on what, you know. But he also told me recently that he had just seen the movie Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. And as he's sitting there listening to me, he says, remember the line in the movie when he says, who are those guys? He goes, I'm sitting there across from you and saying, Who is this guy? I've never seen anything like that. This guy knows exactly what. So anyway, so bottom line is after he said what he did about being a PR director for a professional, he said, I'll make you a deal. He said, if you can get your grades up and you can keep them up, do you think you can do for my football team what this guy Bob Fischel does for the Yankees? And I basically said, well, when do I start? So I walked into that office literally flunking out of school. I walked out of the office after that meeting with a job. And it didn't pay anything, but I walked out of that job as the public relations director of the Yorktown High School football team. What a story. And I got right to work. I mean, guys, we had a media guide. No no high school. My coach Dowson said, we never had a media guide before you got there. And we never had one since you left. But I would think to myself, well, when this guy comes down to do the game of the week, which maybe we're on the game of the week twice a year, three times a year maybe, Jerry Desmond comes in from WFAS, and how does he know how to pronounce the names, right? What is he going to say about our quarterback, Tim Klemchuk? So we put what his father does, what his aspirations are, what he wants to be when he gets big, what is he, what, you know – we did a bio on each guy and, uh, and a pronunciation guide. So, uh, you know, that, that's kind of what got it started. And, you know, you, it's happenstance. You know, I meet a guy who's a sports editor who my senior year moves to DeKalb, Illinois to be the sports editor of the DeKalb Daily Chronicle, calls me up one day and says, you need to come and look at this school here. They got a you know up and coming major sports program. That week that he makes that call, we're playing Indiana University in basketball, the number five ranked team in the country, and we beat them by nineteen points. You know, so I'm out there the week after on a visit with this guy, Stanley Shallot, after the basketball team had just beaten Bobby Knight and the and the Indiana Hoosiers. You know, it was like a recruiting trip. Uh, so I ended up going to NIU, which enabled me, I mean, Dave, I think you said it early on that at that time, schools did not have sports management programs, you know, to be a PR director, you took journalism, you you learned how to write and you took public relations courses, but you know... NIU, and I was just honored by being inducted into their Athletics Hall of Fame. Now, who would have ever thought that? I mean, when I got to Northern Illinois University on September the 9th, 1972, right, there, I would have never aspired to be a, there was no NIU Athletics Hall of Fame. Not that I ever would have aspired to be in it. But what there was, was future Hall of Famers. That mentored me and helped me and guided me and criticized me and yelled at me or whatever it was. You know, the football coach, the basketball coach, the athletic director, the sports information director. These these people all played a significant role in allowing me to go on and do what I do. That's why, and I I don't want to get controversial here, but all these people that think they're getting some college education on their computer with Great these, point. you know, Great these, you, know yep. uh, you know, online classes, you're not getting the same education. You're, you're not connecting with anybody. You know, I mean, I learned how to make coffee, you know, when I went out. You know, I learned how to balance a checking account, although you don't have to do that anymore. But, but you know, there, NIU was my Disneyland. They had a radio station. They had a student newspaper where I went to work every day. You know, I mean, uh, you know, I got to travel to California with the football team when we played Fresno State in in 1973. I I, I mean, it it was an unbelievable. I mean, I don't know if I'm happy to tell the story, but at some point, if we do this again, I got to tell you the story that got me into. Remember I said where I learned if you make someone's day, you might change their life. Yep. You want me to tell you that story? Yeah. Let's talk about that. So I'm on the, the, st- the staff of the Northern Star. I'm like the low man on the totem pole. And me and another, we, the, the sports staff gets an invitation from the Chicago Cubs, from their PR director, Chuck Shriver, who is a NIU grad. Uh, I don't even think we knew that at the time. We get invited to a college sports editor's seminar before they host the Cincinnati Reds on, let's say, Saturday, May, whatever the day was, 1974. So a, a friend of mine who's also an aspiring journalist, Phil Kadner, we are SVP that we will go. Now, I got to tell you this, guys. I don't remember anything about how we got there, what we, how we, I mean, I remember Phil saying we need to leave really early because parking around Wrigley Field is very tough. And we're two college kids. We're not we can't pay whatever the the five dollars it might cost if we find a lot. So I'm guessing one of us drove, we parked the car, we get to Wrigley Field. This thing starts at noon. I think the game was at two. We get there at eight thirty in the morning. And what did we do? We park the car wherever we park. We walk over to the stadium and go to the press gate, which is what the letter that we're holding says to, you know, go to the press gate. We go to the press gate. Now maybe it's nine o'clock. And there's a an attendant there, an elderly guy, who's probably younger than I am now. And he says, can I help you? And I said, yeah, we have this letter. We're here for the College Sports Center today. He looks at the letter and he goes, you realize it's at noon? And I said, yes, sir. He goes, it's nine o'clock. I said, "Oh, uh what do you suggest we do?" He goes, "Well, we can't have you wandering the streets. Go on in."
2: Oh, that's right. And funny. he just
1: lets now can will that would that happen today?
2: No, you be, be you be oh, I don't even
0: yeah, want to think okay. about it. All right,
1: so, we wander in and we walk, we find ourselves down by the railing to the home plate side of the first plate base dugout, which is the visiting dugout. And so we're looking up the third base line. Right down the third baseline, we're looking. And after about now, there's a ground skier. Hey, there's a painter. He's Oh, he's touching up. You know, we're ex- Anything we see, we're excited, right? Oh, they're putting the flags up. Look at that, you know? So after about an hour, we finally see a guy in a Cub uniform coming out of the left field corner, which is where the Cubs clubhouse was in those days. It wasn't connected to the dugout. It was in left field under the stands. They've since rectified that. The guy's coming out, he's walking, he's getting to third base, and my friend Phil goes, holy crap, that's Ernie Banks. Now, Ernie Banks, you know, Mr. Cub, let's play two. And Phil yells over, hey, Ernie, and we both wave. Now, what are we expecting from Ernie Banks? Wave back. So Ernie waves back, and he keeps walking straight to us. Now Ernie is at the railing in front of us and saying, what the heck are you two guys doing here at 10 o'clock? You know, uh, the only ones in the ballpark. And Phil says, or one of us says, we're here for the college sports editors seminar. And Ernie bank says, Oh, so you two guys want to be sports writers. And I said, no, no. Phil said, well, I do, but Rick here wants to be the public relations director for a major league team. And that turned. So thank you, Phil. That that, Turned Ernie to me attention to me, he got right in front of me, and he said, "So you want to be a big league PR man, right?" And I said, "Yes, sir." He goes, "Well, if you work hard, if you believe it, it will happen. I guarantee you. If you believe that that will happen, it will happen." Now I want you to repeat. I'm going to be a big league PR director. I'm going to be a big league. No louder. And I this went on for like louder. I'm like, and I'm yelling it now. So he goes, okay, you make sure you come and say hello when you get to the major leagues. Oh and he God. walked away. Okay? Now, 15 years later, whatever, I'm in Cooperstown for the induction of Willie Stargell, Pirate, in the Hall of Fame. And we're at a cocktail reception, which is in the Hall of Fame gallery, like with all the plaques. Yeah, I've been there. Yep. Okay. So I see Ernie Banks standing over there, and I walk over to him, and I say, excuse me, Mr. Banks? He says, yes. I said, I don't want to take up your time, and you won't remember this, but about 15 years ago I met you at Wrigley Field before a college sports and you you took the time to encourage me because I wanted to be a Major League Baseball PR director, and he's listening to this. He's not, like, looking around, and I just wanted to say thank you for taking the time that day to do that and give you my card. And he took the card and he looked down at the card and he started reading it out loud. And he's like, Richard J. Cerrone, vice president, public relations, Pittsburgh Pirates. And he looked up and he's got like tears coming out of his eyes. And he gives me this big hug and yeah, oh, okay. So he goes away. Like 10 minutes later, he's back. Rick, Rick, would you mind, would you mind telling that story one more time for my wife? So he was, he got a kick out of that. But I don't, you know, it resonated with me, right? Um, Yeah, I mean, Ernie Banks, what did he try to do? Make somebody's day. He's not, you know. But he gave me encouragement. And it meant a lot. Um, And it meant a lot to him afterwards, you could tell. Yeah, so it it comes around. Like, sometimes when you do a good turn, right? Look, I got to be really honest with you. Um, And Kevin, you know me. I mean nobody's perfect people. There's probably people out there that feel like, you know, I remember one time uh, when I worked for a PR firm after I left the Yankees, we were trying to promote something in Syracuse. And the guys, one of the gentlemen I worked with was from Syracuse. He knew people in Syracuse is from, he goes, Oh, let we'll call the sports director. He's got a talk show, you know, Um, Hey, he he leaves him a voicemail. I'm standing with Rick Cerrone, former Yankee PR director. And we'd like to get, we're working on a thing and we want to get so-and-so on your show. So give me a call back. So like the next day, the guy, Dave Donovan, comes in and goes, hey, the guy called me back and left me a voicemail. You might want to hear this. And this guy just went off on me. He's like, Rick Cerrone, I wouldn't walk across this room for Rick Cerrone. He, you know, tell Rick Cerrone if he remembers when I needed credentials for You know, you know, I asked for credentials and I was declined, denied, denied, denied. And like, holy crap. So now, you know what? I used to have an edict to my staff, like 10 principles that you will follow if you're going to work for PR, whether it was the Pirates or the Yankees. The first one was treat everyone like a VIP, even even before you learn who they are. Don't start treating a guy nice because you find out it's Jeter's father. Or you know whatever. The tenth one was you better have a damn good reason for saying no. Okay, so if I said no, or, or we declined, you know, or me or Jason Zillow or anyway if we declined these this radio station, there must have been a reason. Was it opening day? Was it whatever? But that guy did not have a good opinion. But I will tell you that the best thing that happens to me to this day. Is when someone says you're not going to remember this, but we've met. You know, oh, really? Yeah, do you? You know, I mean, I was talking to uh, someone at the Elias Sports Bureau, and again, I need the Elias Sports Bureau. They're our partner. They're you know they, you know, we we they make their services available. And one day, you know, John Labombarda from the Elias Sports Bureau called me up and and sh- I want to share some news with you. It was about the sale of the company and whatever, you know. And I said to him, John, I said, I got to be honest with you. I appreciate you telling me, but I'm even more touched that you would think enough of me that you would share this with me. And John's response was, Well, you don't remember what you did for me, do you? I said, No. And he told me this story about how in like 2002, he was on vacation with his, with his, uh, two daughters and his wife and they came to the ballpark for practice and he came down to say hello to me and Jason and say, by the way, is there there a good place for us to stand? Like, or because my daughters desperately are trying to get autographs, especially Derek Jeter. He goes, and you came and got my daughters, put them in the dugout, brought Jeter over. And to this day, they went to Disneyland. They went to this, they went to SeaWorld. All they talk about is remember when we got, you know, so I don't remember that. You, know, you don't remember the, you know, I remember Teresa Wright, but, you know, when someone says, you know, you gave my son a ball or something, or, you know. Uh, you know, one time, real quick, I saw this kid after spring training game behind the <laughs> behind the dugout, and he was, I guess he was trying to get stuff from players, like there were some of them through there, and he didn't get anything. And he was crying, This like, six or seven year old kid was crying behind the dugout. And I said, Hey, you can't be crying. You're supposed to be. And I went in, I got a ball and I tossed him the ball. And now he's all happy. Mission accomplished. Right. So I get in the clubhouse and, um, the, one of the clubbies says to me, Hey, uh, Mr. Steinbrenner called and he's pretty hot. He wants you in his office right away. What did, what did you do? Do you, what did you do? Did you give a ball to somebody? I said, Are you serious? He said, Yeah, he's all bent out of shape. He wants you up there right now. Oh man, I was so hot. This is it. I went in my office, got out my briefcase, took out my checkbook. I'm gonna slap the thing down. I'm gonna walk him his office. I'm gonna put the checkbook on the table and say, How much is the damn baseball? I will pay for it. Because I turned a kid who was crying and so uh <laughs> it's like. I walk in his office like ready to hit him and he goes, hey, sit down. You want some coffee or whatever you need? It, you have, it, have a donut or whatever. And I'm like, this doesn't sound like he's that upset. So then he asked me about, now this interview tomorrow, Um, are we doing it here or are we doing, no, we're doing it here. Okay. And as I'm sitting there, I'm thinking, that son of a bitch down in the club. It was a practical joke. they knew steinbrenner wanted me up there but they decided to throw in oh he's really pissed about you giving away the baseball so which really wouldn't be out of the realm of uh you know No, it was perfectly believable
2: well and just uh finally rick with the uh I, i can vouch for this i remember uh you know we would run uh you know fundraisers and things like that when my kids were in school and stuff and uh Rick would always entertain uh, you know, a couple kids up in the press box and uh, things like that. And, 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 you know, meet the announcers, make, go down on the field, whatever. And, uh, so, uh, it, it's, it, it does pay off. And any of the time I run into those kids, even today, you know, 20, whatever years later, uh, they're still thankful
1: of that experience. Oh, it's wonderful. That's what you, that's what it's about. You got to do good things for people. I think we tend too much time thinking about ourselves and, and, you know, personal goals and gains. And we got to just, you know, you know, I don't know, spread a little love around, but.
0: Rick, that was, that was phenomenal. Uh, And I'm going to thank Kevin. Thanks for introducing us, me to Rick. I know know you've known him for a lifetime. Two Hall of Famers today, two of the finest gentlemen um, that I've met in the game, and I appreciate both of you guys. Please, everybody, subscribe to Baseball Digest. Uh, you know, what we've heard today, uh, Kevin, you've reimagined it, and we, we appreciate that. And uh, Kevin, or uh, Rick, I should say, and Kevin, read Kevin on Ball 9. Tremendous stories twice a week. Uh, the, baseball's better with the two of you in it. So we hope that you two keep pushing forward with what you're doing. And as far as our podcast goes, uh, episode 92 right now with Coach and Kern and Real Voices of the Game. If you like it, uh, please click like, subscribe, and follow us. And we appreciate our 1,000 downloads per episode right now, the 42 countries that support us. And Rick, thanks again for coming on the show. Great stories. And the next time you come on, we are going to get you back. I do want to pick apart maybe a good Babe Ruth movie. Um, we haven't had one yet. I want your opinion on that.
1: Yeah, there's not one to really talk about, but we'll do that. And I'll also tell you where the mistakes are in the natural. No, yeah. that'd be
0: good. That'd be good. That'd be great. But uh, thanks again to both you guys. And we're signing off here at Coach and Kernan Podcast Network. Rick, hang out with us for a little bit after the music. And uh, we're signing off.